Recast, supporting women entrepreneurs in Southern Alberta, with your host, Jenny Bourne. Welcome to WeCast, recorded on Treaty 7 lands, home of the Blackfoot people of the Canadian Plains and the Métis Nation Region 3. WeCast is produced by WeSTEM, the Women Entrepreneurs in STEM program, here to support all women entrepreneurs in rural regions of Southern Alberta. WeSTEM is made possible thanks in part to funding from the Government of Canada's Women Entrepreneurship Strategy through Economic Development Lethbridge. The WeCast podcast is here to amplify the voices and tell the stories of self-identified women entrepreneurs and those who support them across the rural regions of Southern Alberta. Please join us in conversation with women business owners from Southern Alberta as we build community in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. My name is Jenny Bourne, and I am the Senior Program Coordinator for the WeSTEM program and the host of WeCast. Alyssa Borix, our technical producer and WeSTEM's event coordinator, is also here with us. On today's episode, we are very excited to welcome Elise Watson, founder and master beekeeper of ABC Bees. Since its founding in 2010, ABC Bees has become the leading beekeeping education company in Canada. Over her career, Elise has taught beekeeping across North America, been featured in Forbes magazine, and has represented small-scale beekeepers to the Canadian Senate. Elise has developed strong beginner, intermediate, and advanced beekeeping programming that has been shared with thousands of students. Elise also teaches small-scale apiary production in a five-week course online to other farmers, hobbyists, and enthusiasts from around the world. I'm speaking for Elise here, so I'm going to hand it over to you, Sue. Elise is an educator at heart, but beekeeping is her passion. She maintains tight management practices with her colonies and includes diverse stocks in her apiary. This is an effort to breed quality queens for the prairie climate and resilient survival stocks for treatment-free management, and her experience in ethical and caring management of queens is very expansive. Elise believes in the values of the hive mentality using bees as a conduit. This means that not only does she support her beekeepers looking to expand their skills, but she also believes the more the public understands about bees, the greater the conservation effort will be. Through ABC Bees, she runs conservation programming for children, community associations, and private organizations. Elise has also published four books engaging the public about bees, the trilogy Little Bees on Bees, Solitary Bees, Bumblebees, Gardening for Bees, and a book for teachers' use while educating children about the importance of bees titled Bee Inspired Teaching Resource. Elise spends her time away from the bees with her husband and children in the garden, doing crafts and connecting with friends and family. (laughs) Welcome, Elise. I need to rewrite that bio to just say, Elise likes bees, likes teaching, <laughs> loves her family, and loves her friends. That's all I need to say. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I'm like, I'm going to edit this down a little and just, you know, keep the bullet points. And I'm like, I, I can't, I can't, I can't edit this because it's so interesting and you've done so many amazing things and we have to, uh, we have to highlight them all. Well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then, and I even, I made a note to start off by saying, wow, Elise, you are really a busy bee, but maybe <laughs> it's just too cheesy. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I think I think it's just a natural progression. Like the more you engage with honeybees and you're managing them and you see that interconnectivity of the community of the hive, it's naturally going to percolate into the human community that I'm surrounding myself with and how to how can I be a provider for everyone that I see like where are the niches that I can help fill in this in this beautiful world we live in. I love to hear that. But I was looking at your website, I was you know reading up on you and I was like, what is an apiary? Like, I, I know honey farms, I know beekeeping, but what is an apiary? So an apiary is just like a location where there's a collection of colonies. So that's the terminology for an apiary. So like if you were to have a garden, like a garden is an area where you're growing plants, but then you would have plots within the garden that are growing specific plants. So a plot would be like a beehive and the garden would be like a, the apiary. Oh, do you have to have a certain number for it to be considered an apiary? No, no, no. So like an apiarist is a person who oversees apiaries. So you can have one apiary, you could have multiple. I always get it. um, I've so many times I've had people write articles and how I take care of aviaries. And I'm like, birds are very different than bees. But the autocorrect apiaries is not a common term. (laughs) No, it's not. So that's why I just wanted to clarify that. So what what brought you like what attracted you to to bees and to entrepreneurship a lot of people i know love bees and beekeeping but it's it's a hobby more more well, than and i think i think um for me i've always wanted to be a beekeeper when i was in college i uh was working at this gas station this old man he was tiny would come in and he had a matching overall suspenders and matching like welder's cap and he would always come in and buy like a twix bar or a kit kat and you'd stand there and we'd chat and he'd eat half of it and you'd fold the rest of it up and put it in his pocket. I'm like, well, what are you doing with that? He's like, I'm keeping it for my wife. She sews me these cute things. I'm like, well, are you a welder? And he's like, I'm a beekeeper. And I was like, I've always wanted to be a beekeeper. And this is like when I was like 16 or 17. And he offered me some colonies. And I said, mm, I'm going to like go to college and leave this one horse town. <laughs> fast forward like three years later I'm in college and my roommate I go to his farm and there's the beekeeper shows up to keep the bees on their property and I'm like I've always wanted to keep bees and he's like you should come out so like I wore a hoodie and like covered myself up with like you know gardening gloves and was out there and just fell in love and as we're walking back I told him about the old man he goes oh well these are his hives I actually bought them out last year and so in the end it came full circle and I've just been obsessed ever since did you finish your college? Actually, I dropped out my final semester going into spring when I decided I was like, I told my, um, uh, I was in the, like an honors program. And I told my prof, I was like, um, so I'm dropping out. And he was like, what, why? And I was like, I'm going to be a beekeeper. And he just looked at me. He's like, please just finish your degree. And I was like, no, I have to do this. And it was nice. About five years ago, I got an email from him and he was like, I think you made the right choice. And I was like, vindication. (laughs) (laughs) That is so good. Well, I wondered maybe, maybe you were studying something related or a business degree or something. No, I was studying a bachelor of arts in history, specializing in American agricultural history. So it was like this, like, I love storytelling. I love seeing the interconnectivity of people and place and culture and food production and seeing really the way the world was before we had, you know, the post-war large-scale production monocropping 
is kind of this idea of share crop production, self-sufficiency, but in a, in a monetizable scale. So instead of self-sufficiency, like in prepping, where you're like self-sufficient in your own uh, food production, which I love. And a lot of my students and people I work with are reason they're getting into bees is they like the idea of producing their own food. Um, for me, it was like, okay, how can this small farmer become interconnected? And one of the first books I ever got in beekeeping was this book called ABC XYZ of Beekeeping. And it came out in the first edition of it, I think came out in like 1890. And each new edition, they kept the old edition and then just added content. So as you go through it, and you can get it now through Amazon or wherever, mm -hmm. they've put out a newer version. It has the original block prints in the original and the typeface is all really antiquated. So it has everything from like picture of like how to manage hives. And there's like a boy with like a 50, like maybe an eight-year-old boy who's a beekeeper whose face is swollen. And it's like a short article about bee stings. But one of them was like an entire like series of chapters on uh, selling honey. And the first block of it is like how to sell honey. And it's a man with a donkey and a buckboard going around with his honey wares. And then it ends with him doing a count. He's got, you know, a, a piglet, you know, uh, half a dozen chickens, you know, 40 dozen eggs. He's also got a canister of milk. And he goes through like all this food that he's able to get in, in trade for his honey. And that's how honey was sold. Right. The, the commodification was not financial. It was it was resource assets. And so for me, that's kind of always been interesting is how do we really recognize the value of food and how do we kind of communicate that value in in context of social communities and groups? And that's how I've become a teacher. Right. Is teaching people how to do this and how to live in a little bit of a different way. So when you started this in 2010, did you have education in mind or were you like, yay, I'm going to harvest honey? And Well, I always wanted to teach. That's part of the reason I was in the Bachelor of Arts, right? Is I figured I would become a school teacher. And I, I love being around people. I'm an extrovert, if you can't tell. And I'm very verbose, which is also, if you're going to take an arts degree, you better be able to write. And so for me, uh, the teaching part naturally came because I had never really kept bees before. And in 2009, I went to a conference uh, through the university. Um, it was all Guelph. It was called the Impact Conference. And so they took people from different schools across the provinces and put a hundred of us in at the University of Guelph for a week. And we worked with the David Suzuki Foundation. And at the end, they were like, you, everyone can have access to $5,000. And I mean, for me in 2009, college student living with a whole bunch of people in a tiny place, Five grand was like, you could tell me it was a million dollars. And I would yeah, um, <laughs> I've been there. We can do $5,000 and you can, you can start a project as long as it's sustainable. So I created a project. And I was like, I'm going to learn to keep bees. And I'm, how do you learn? You learn with your peers. And so I'm like, I'll bring in a teacher. We'll all take a course. I'll pitch it to the community and we'll all learn together. And so I had this project. I was like, I'm going to do five different things. We're going to collaborative purchase bees. We're going to micro loan to a producer to be able to make sure he's able to be supported as a farmer. We're going to collaboratively purchase uh, handmade suits and, from artisans and we'll commission a local artisan to make suits and we'll commission like uh, a shop class to hand make tools and we'll buy those beekeeping tools from the shop class. Like I had this huge project and they came back to me and they're like, just do one of these things. You can have the $5,000 if you do one of these things. Well, that summer was amazing. Like I just put a signs up at the coffee shops pre-social media and I was like, who wants to learn how to beekeep with me? We're going to do a course at this community hall. Well, everything sold out. Everything went really well. And I'm really comfortable not knowing what the hell I'm doing and telling people that. 
So I was like, well, I'm going to bring in these bees and I'm going to buy from these, this small farmer in BC and we're going to go out and get them. So I, my first install and actually beekeeping by myself was done with a crowd of like 20 people and we did it together. And I, and I was open. I'm like, I've never done this before. And they're like, either have we. And so we just like did it together. And that's how my training and learning programming has started was like learning with people, being very comfortable saying, I don't know, and being very inclusive in that space. Um, and of course, I've been doing it for a really long time. I've been beekeeping all over North America. I have a lot of great mentors. I've learned a lot of things. So now I'm, I'm pretty knowledgeable. I'm, I'm pretty expertise in my knowledge base, but I'm still hold that value of consistently being like, huh, I don't know what's going on. Let's wait a week, come back, look at it and figure it out. Maybe we can find a solution by then. Um, which is, I think, how farming and working with food and working with nature, you have to have that, that flexibility. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, my questions might go all over the place. No, this is but, great. Yeah, so I know people who have backyard, you know, hives, hob like hobby hives, right? And some in Calgary, and I live in Lethbridge. And I just thought that was the greatest thing and a great COVID thing to learn to do. So I was looking into having a hive, but I can't. There's a bylaw in, in Lethbridge that says you can't do that here. So with the students that you work with, do you find that they're coming from different areas? Is there a divide or a difference between like urban beekeepers and rural beekeepers? Well, this is an interesting thing because I've worked with municipalities for many years now. I kept bees on the roof of the city hall here in Calgary and different mm -hmm. aldermen's backyards. Um, I helped uh, framework and write the bylaw for overturning the ban on beekeeping in the city of Edmonton. I've advised on many bylaws municipally. Um, but I think it's interesting is this conversation is happening more and more about what is land use and what is what is what does that mean? So like whether it's municipal lands, public lands that are now planting, you know, not mowing and instead planting pollinator friendly habitats, it saves money, mm -hmm. it saves water, it stops runoff. And then, of course, it's beautiful and it's beneficial for bees or situations like, well, what can you do on private land within the city? And that comes to chickens, um, <laughs> it comes up with bees and um, pet bylaws in general. So. I think what's happening is that there's more dialogue around the idea of what public space, what private space, and what needs to be, what is, what is culturally permissible within each time and place. And every municipality is different. I mean, Edmonton is a very different city than Calgary. Culturally, you know, blue collar versus white collar. Lethbridge is the same. And it's funny too, I find when I work with municipalities, the more rural the community around that town, like Red Deer, um, the more anti-agricultural they are within the town because they're like, I left that to oh. live in a city. I grew up with chickens in the field. It's not romantic. Yeah. It's work. I don't want to hear chickens or smell chickens in my neighborhood, right? Like there's a reason why I live in town. If I wanted that, I would have stayed. And so I think there's like, it's an interesting thing. So I don't know what's going on in Lethbridge, but I do know that the conversations are happening. Mm -hmm. They're happening across Canada. Like that's why when I spoke to the Senate, we talked about things like that, about the ideas of like what federal spaces could look like and what kind of guidelines can the federal kind of set for provincial recognition or acknowledgement. And I think that's where it's interesting is like hobby beekeepers are now like, 
they're a unique class of people. Usually they're highly educated. They're good list makers. They're people who are really good at organizing things. They're usually kind of strange. They have hobbies. They're active, uh, whether it's they're active in knitting, which is a lot of sitting, but they're still active. Mm -hmm. um, and they're usually like leaders in their community of some, some way, shape or form, whether it's the workplace for extracurricular, whether they're on a team, whether they're like in their church. And so when they want to keep bees and they find out, oh, we're not allowed to keep bees in, my, in Lethbridge, they're the type of people who go, why? Who do I talk to? Right? Instead of going, well, I'm going to keep bees and just not tell anyone. They're the type of like, no, I want to keep bees and I want to know why we can't and how do I, who do I talk to and how do I make this happen? So there's a lot more movement, I think, when it comes to bees and pollinator spaces in urban settings than there is when it comes to other important things like rainwater catchment and runoff and food production, even though the liability concerns are the same. Yeah. So it's interesting, but I have a lot of beekeepers that are urban, um, peri-urban. I have a lot of big farmers where a lot of the times <clears throat> it's a spouse who's like, we own a thousand head cattle ranch and my kids are now in school full time or they're, I'm empty nesting. And I look at the cows and I think, I don't want to deal with cows. This is not <laughs> my thing, but I want to do something. So they're like, Bees sound like fun because I don't have to shovel poop in the winter. <laughs> You're like, yeah, you don't have to do any of that with beekeeping. This is great. In the wintertime when the weather's bad, you don't have to defrost waters. You don't have to, you know, even mess with them. You can, you could just like stay in the house and make your beeswax candles and drink the mead that you brewed and, and look outside and go, it looks cold out and not even have to go out into it. So we got a little bit of everyone that uh, is interested in beekeeping. You mentioned list making. Being a good list maker, that was the first thing you mentioned as, you know, people who, who are interested or good at that. What, why is it very important to be highly organized? And I think the organization of a colony is very appealing to organized people because there's an infrastructure. There is like a system and mm. versus like if you watch cows in a field, there doesn't see the grazing is not a systematic um, observation. But when you watch the landing board of a beehive, it's like watching an airport with the landing of planes. There's clearly like some sort of system or organization where they're foraging, how they're foraging, how they're organizing the honey versus the brood or the babies in the colony. There's a, mm -hmm. there's a system there. And that for people, I mean, I'm based in Calgary or Crossfield, but we do a lot of business in Calgary. And <laughs> there's a lot of engineers in Calgary. And so... There's a lot of engineering beekeepers around here and it totally like flips the switch for them. They love it because it's like, okay, nature is red in tooth and claw, but mm -hmm. bees are strategical planners with infrastructure and seasonality of behavior and outcomes that I can understand. There's like some sort of turn on there that pigs may not fulfill. Yeah, <laughs> I, I understand. I, yeah. I hear you. So you mentioned, I mentioned at the beginning, and you just, you just talked about when you spoke to the Senate, how, how did that come, come about? And what, what were you hoping to, to achieve? Well, it was interesting when I got the email, because it came an email, I thought it was spam. <laughs> I was like, I am a prince from Congo. <laughs> I am a representative of your federal government. Immediately, I was like, mm, I don't think so. But uh, I looked, I actually opened it and looked at it and I was like, okay, so they're having um, the, the council that oversees like forestry and, and agricultural use land. They're trying to get a really good assessment of like where the beekeeping industry is commercially 
in this country. And Alberta is the fifth largest honey producing region in the world. Like we're talking average honey yields in Alberta can be around, you know, 150 to 200 pounds of honey per colony. When you go to California, they'll average like 20 pounds a year, right? I was shocked when I read that. I had no idea. And then you had on like, oh, from Saskatchewan. I'm I'm, Stella. Stella. You had Stella Stella on. Saskatchewan's the second largest producer in the world. And they'll yield up to 250 pounds of honey per colony. So like we are in the the honey, not just the bread basket of the world, but we're in like this honey production basket of the world because of how far north we are, how much sunlight Mm -hmm. we get. And then we have this beautiful kind of match of, of not being too hot where the plants don't pr- produce a lot of nectar because it drains them of moisture. Mm-hmm. And then not being so long of a summer season that the plants are actually select for shorter growth, more flowers because of the shorter flowering season. And so with those two, all those things make this perfect storm of being like an amazing honey producing region and some of the best quality honey in the world. So it's a huge amount of our GDP. And Mm. that's not even considering the amount of food pollination that they do in this breadbasket. So they were really trying to understand like, okay, there's definitely like an international market for this product, but there's also concerns about the resiliency of the industry. Mm. And then there's also this like grassroots movement of small scale food production, small scale self-sufficiency production. And then now this idea of municipal and regional organizations that are advocating for small scale hobbyist movements. And so they brought me in as well as two other speakers to present on the present, like the side of hobbyist beekeepers. And for me, I I put forward five different recommendations in which I could see how uh, federal organizations could support small scale producers and increase resiliency in the industry. And they actually took three of them and put them in their proposal, which was really exciting. I felt so proud of myself. But it's really practical. It's things like, how do we maximize small business, which, I mean, working with women in STEM as my own company with women in STEM, how do we maximize small business, which are way easier at pivoting, way easier at adapting, way smaller inputs financially? How do we leverage that in order to create a long-term resiliency for the larger industries, larger commercial operations? Because a guy who manages, and I say guy because it's male-dominated, white male dominant, who manages 50,000 colonies, isn't going to pivot well. And if the commodity price overseas drops and the price of gas goes up and the cost of labor goes up, they could go bust, right? Mm-hmm. Versus me, where I manage, you know, like 100 colonies and I breed queens and I can train other people how to raise queens. When 95%, 99% of queens are imported from overseas, that we're dependent on that global commodity market of stock, uh, which no other farming industry is in Canada. How, do, how does my business and how do all these small producers that can have the time and the energy and the versatility do that, how do we support these farmers so that they can get better quality stock locally produced um, and then keeping the cash money in the province, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of sending that money to New Zealand, sending that money to Hawaii, sending that money to Australia. We instead are putting that money back into the local economy and keeping that money within the realm of small, medium, and large-sized farms. So that's my, that's my real big passion is not just training beekeepers, but how do these hobbyists and small-scale farmers really build resiliency in the, the commodity industry, in the large-scale producers? We were speaking before we started recording about 
last month's guest, Stella Sane, right? And her farm is in Saskatchewan and you work out of Alberta. And then the rules are very different, right? So I'm curious if provincially there's, you know, very strict and very different rules and regulations. And then you're going to speak to the Senate, which is like a federal overview. Is there a lot of cooperation between provinces or do you think it would be more beneficial if, if there was more? Yeah, I think I think there is. Well, I know there is. There's the Canadian Organization of Beekeepers. Um, and then there's also CAPA, which is the Canadian Association of Professional Apiculturalists, which mm-hmm. is the research done nationally that's shared uh, interprovincially. Canada's funny. When it comes to any sort of policy whatsoever, each province is its own culture and each major city and rural community is its own culture. So, of course, Alberta is an outlier in a lot of ways about our opinions of politics. And it is very similar when it comes to beekeeping. And it's funny, like Saskatchewan, historically NDP, very protectionist, like, you know, like um, their mineral rights and how they regulate land. All those things are very similar in the way the bee industry. So the border closed between the United States and Canada. You cannot transport bees or equipment into Canada from the United States since the late 80s. And that was to restrict pathogen um, transmission between U.S. pollination and southern U.S. And that kind of rotating cycle of bees moving, you know, from blueberry to citrus in Florida, down to almond in California, up to apples in Washington and Oregon, like in cherries. So there is like a constant circular highway of production, which is like featured in a lot of movies. Well, that production before 1989 was that it would like Saskatchewan beekeepers, Manitoba beekeepers, Alberta beekeepers would own operations in Texas. They would own operations in California and they would have sister businesses. And so they would do the winter in California or Texas or Florida And then they would truck their bees all the way up for canola pollination in Lethbridge or in Medicine Hat or, Mm -hmm. you know, all the way even up to, you know, northern Alberta, you know, Prince George area. Some of the honey production there is crazy because they get 20 hours of sunlight. Right. So once that border closed, it severed those relationships and it really damaged the industry really badly financially. Mm -hmm. A lot of bee operations went out of business. They had to liquidate to the U.S., or they had to liquidate their Canadian businesses. But what happened was, is that each province then had their own resiliency structure of how to adapt that. And Saskatchewan was unique in that they said, fine, we'll do it ourselves then. And they became really independent as far as queen production, as far as bee production and self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. And then Alberta was very much like, well, we'll just keep doing it the same way. We'll just import from other countries and be dependent because that's how we've always done it. We've always imported and so the, the cultures are very different between the two provinces, even though they may both have the same religious beliefs and the same political leanings. Uh, when it comes to beekeeping, their uh, adaptability was very different. And then, of course, we have BC, which is BC, their unique situation because they have the lower mainland, they have the Okanagan, they have temperate mm-hmm. winters. So they were able to like shift much better. And then Manitoba was just kind of like... <laughs> thrown to the wolves and oh, they no. because it's so cold there and then like the amount of snow and like their weather like as far as Canada goes Manitoba gets the short stick as bad as Newfoundland does <laughs> for weather right so so 
they were really resilient and adaptable. And some of the most innovative beekeeping practices happening in the world where the snow flies is happening in Manitoba. There's amazing resiliency, amazing science, and amazing adaptations for production and self-sufficiency. But it is pretty isolated. But I honestly, I don't think it's political. I think it's the fact that farmers work so damn hard all year that it's really mm. hard for them to keep track of what everyone else is doing. And um, technology is fixing that. I mean, COVID even helps because now all these conferences are online. So I can go to the, you know, Manitoba Beekeepers Annual Conference because it's virtual. I don't have to fly to Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, there's a lot more opening up happening, um, for everyone, not just for the president goes or just, you know, and then you get the cliffs notes in an email or in the newsletter. Um, so it's changing for sure, but it's definitely like beekeeping in each province is culturally different than just as the way it would be as a political running candidacy and what their priorities are is different. That's, that's very interesting. It's you good. mentioned just all, you just seem to offhandedly mention, but I, I think it might be you know worth a, a discussion here. You offhandedly mentioned that it's uh, the industry is very dominated by old, older white men, I believe you said. So as a getting into it in 2010 as a as a young woman, have you had many struggles, any oh, obstacles yes. you've had to overcome? You know, when I uh, my family's originally from the south like Southern U.S. And I remember yeah. I, my, I was visiting my granny and taking care of her while she was getting her cancer treatments. And we're talking like Bug Tussle, Tennessee, the hills of Kentucky, Tennessee border. I took my granny's car and drove to the local gas station, like local as in like in a valley, you know, listen to banjos and playing in the background. And I was standing there and they wouldn't turn the pump on. And this old man came out and he's whittling, looking at me and I'm like, hi, I would like gas. And he just stares at me and he said, who's your daddy? And I was so confused. And I was like 18 at the time. And I was like, I'm here, you know, my granny Mary. And, and he was like, Oh, cause he recognized the car and he didn't know who I was. And he wasn't about to give gas to someone who stole a car. Right. <laughs> but he didn't want to like be rude. And so once he knew my granny Mary, he was like, yeah. And he turned on the pumps and we chatted and he asked how she was doing super friendly, but also really weird. I cannot express how many times when I first started male beekeepers would ask me who my father was in, because the in, only reason I would be at a beekeeping conference or at a club meeting was clearly a man was keeping the bees and I was there to learn or help there's no way that I was doing my own thing um, and historically, when I first was going, like this is like 14 years ago, I was the only woman in the room that wasn't married to a beekeeper What's been interesting, though, in Alberta specifically, is we see statistically his, like, that more women have been entering science for like the last decade than ever in history before. And there's actually more women graduating from science degrees, especially in biological sciences, than, than ever before. Like medical science, whether it's biology, medical science, or, you know, mm-hmm. chemistry, in all these realms. So what was interesting was our old provincial apiarist, and he's now the tech transfer lead in Saskatchewan. His name's Dr. Medhat Nasser. He's a huge innovator in beekeeping, wonderful gentleman. Um, when I first met him, he's just like really classic dude, right? Like 
gets along with everyone else there. Very curt, very direct, kind of funny, um, very charismatic, but clearly a man of the men. But all of his interns and summer students and inspectors were leaders in science and graduates, women. So when he retired, the provincial apiarist, in the acting provincial apiarist in Alberta, and now the provincial apiarist, female. The, uh, the people in charge of research and inspections, female. The tech transfer program that launched two years ago, female. Her team, female. Um, the head researcher at the National Bee Diagnostic Center, which is a national organization, <laughs> female. So it was so weird. I went to a beekeeping conference in person before COVID, and I walked in, and it's all men. And then there's like maybe two dozen women, and all of them are the keynote speakers. All of them are the ones in charge of research. All of them want, are in charge of inspections and managing the industry. Um, the hosts, <laughs> the director of the commission in the province, female. And I just was like, this is amazing. And so we're having lunch together and I'm looking around the table and I just gushed. And I was like, this is crazy. Do you guys realize how crazy this is? And they're all looking at me like, yeah, this is awesome. Because not only are they like women in beekeeping, but they're women in power making decisions and guiding the future of beekeeping, mm -hmm. um, which is like inclusive, nurturing, welcoming, uh, lots of forward thinking, great teamwork ethic, um, strategies that are inclusive. And that's been a real interesting thing to see in a historically white, male, very traditional conservative, because these are rural people who live very isolated and usually are in those communities because they're immigrants from very Christian backgrounds and European descent. And so, you know, I mean, Gradanuses in Alberta are the biggest name of beekeeping. There's like six different Gradanus farm families independent across this province, but they're all related, right? It's like mm -hmm. dairy farming is the same thing when it comes to the Dutch in Canada. There's this like interesting um, culture within it. And now we have these like great thinkers and it's the same thing in every other province. Uh, we have women in these positions of power um, taking leadership roles because they are the most educated and appropriate for the position. It's they're not hired because they're women. Yeah. So it's That's been awesome. a huge shift. It's been crazy to witness and be a part of. It's exciting. And I feel much less alienation than I ever have before. It was not easy for the longest time. I can imagine. Well, I have a question. You say you went to the conference and it was still, the attendants were mostly still male, yeah. although the, the leaders were women. So how is that transition going for the average beekeeper? <laughs> are, are they open and, and rolling with it or is there still pushback? Or Well, it's been interesting. So there's, mm -hmm. it's always like a perfect storm, right? It's not, and I don't think I don't think there's overt sexism. I don't think that they feel like they're being sexist. Mm -hmm. I think that they're just used to a, a culture where the female is the head of the household and the man is the head of the farm, right? Like mm -hmm. this is, these are the roles in our rural communities and our children. We have a lot of them. <laughs> and so we need to like, who's going to take that? That's its own labor of love. And then the, the actual farming is its labor of love. And this is like a conventional understanding. So they're not adverse to women being in the room, it's just an unconventional situation. But the perfect storm that's kind of happened is the industry is collapsing. Um, and the industry is collapsing for many reasons. Number one, big farms don't pivot well. 
my cost of doing business is extraordinary. I mean, look at the cost of fuel today. It's insanely high. So if you are driving from Southern Alberta and Brooks, like um, we have uh, Scandia Honey, Reese and Echo down there. They, they're the biggest honey producers. Well, the biggest operation in Canada and Alberta right now. I think they're running over like probably almost 50,000 colonies or something crazy. I don't know their numbers. But they keep bees from southern Alberta, south of Brooks, all the way up almost as far north as Vagraville, so east of Edmonton. So when they go to work and pull honey and do that work, they're filling semi-trucks and they're filling it with staff and they're on the road. And that cost is insanely high. The cost of equipment, the cost of trucks, the cost of woodenware, the cost of bees, and the cost of labor. And so that's really expensive. The other challenge is, is through COVID, importing foreign labor that consistently comes up, you know, same people, same guys every time, they're not allowed to come up in 2020. And it was very difficult to get them to come up. And these operations are so big that if they don't have people managing the hives, the hives die. So there's a huge amount of colonies that died. The other thing that happened is bees, when we are based on importing stock, we're depending on it. You... <laughs> can't bring bees up on unless they come on airplanes that have people on them so the cargo holds are heated so we didn't get bees from new zealand two years in a row so replacement stocks were not available so the industry actually was like crushed by a cost of doing business b shortage of staff and c shortage of stock and then it ended up being one of the worst winters huge amount of winter losses for disease and then we had drought last year. So mm -hmm. honey production was an all-time low. So revenue generation is at a low. And so the industry is being uh, really stretched thin. And when, when money is involved, businesses' ears open up to ideas and innovation and are more eager to try new things than when things are comfortable and profits are being made. And so I think this is where it's been the perfect storm is we have really interesting young people with new ideas coming from other industries, women in particular, um, in positions of power and roles that are, that are um, open to new ideas and innovations and research. And then now we have an industry that's sitting there going, we need a new plan. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really beautiful to witness, I think, individuals in the industry who historically would have been like, why would we change that? My, my grandpa did it this way. My dad did it this way. I'm doing it this way. This is how we've always done it. And it's worked. Now that it's not working as well, now they're going, okay, what else can, we, can be done? And so it's been really a nice marriage to see the energy of these uh, conferences has really opened up interprovincially. There's more conversations about innovation strategies and management like Manitoba. They've been figuring things out for a long time, kind of in their own Petri dish. Now Albertans and, every, and Saskatchewan and BC, everyone's like, hey, how does that work again? Can I try that? Maybe I'll try that on 100 hives in this apiary. And so there is innovation happening finally, but it had to be that like perfect storm of pressure to make industry stop and take stock of where they're at. Right. I get the feeling that you really like bees. <laughs> that's funny because we haven't talked about bees at all we've just talked about the cultural community and the people around that are involved in beekeeping that's true so um, so actually speaking of community this is yeah. so I know that community is at the the heart of your business right and you do offer free webinars you know through your website and 
and such for current and budding beekeepers. So how do you keep that focus on community that's so important to you while having a financially successful business? That's a good question. So going digital or going virtual has been a really interesting transition for me, but it was something I was already moving into before before COVID happened. Um, we, I'm fortunate enough to receive National Research Council funding through the IRAP program to take my in-person course, the, the level one beekeeping certificate and turn it into a five-week online uh, post-secondary accredited course. And so we launched it in 2020 in March. And so it ended up kind of being like the perfect timing again. But I wanted to be home with my kids. I didn't want to be driving and flying everywhere to teach. It just isn't really, um, you know, pumping breast milk in a toilet stall, in a bathroom, you know, uh, organizing childcare to be away from your baby so that you can still generate revenue. It lost its charm immediately. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, like trying to figure out, like, how do I do this? So the virtual format was great. And then when COVID happened, I never had to have a conversation about why online learning was a, a pivot for me. It just happened, which I'm grateful for because I had no idea how to have that conversation. But in the virtual format, it's actually really much more inclusive. I mean, it sucks that you can't like hug or hold someone's hand or like, give someone a business card, but it's way more inclusive because there's no bottleneck. It's way more accessible. So what I've been doing is this master Academy series. So I know so many beekeepers. And so last year I launched, it's one speaker once a month talking about different topics each month. And it's basically like a podcast like this, but it's through video and we do it through zoom webinars. And it's been so great because we have like hundreds of people come. We have speakers from all over the world presenting about their relationship with bees and their experiences. And it builds that community. And then I'm not the guru. I'm not the only uh, knowledge keeper around the world about bees. I continue to keep impressing on people that I don't know everything, but we can figure it out together. Mm -hmm. And that immediately creates a container for inclusivity and a container for community. Um, so I try not to curate the conversations too much. And I try not to always give like a definitive answer. If you ask me a beekeeping question, you want management advice, I give you three answers. All three are good advice, but it's up to you to make that decision, to pilot through the outcome of that decision, mm -hmm. and then to learn from it. Um, because that's what, that's why we're keeping bees or having a garden or taking up knitting. It's not like maybe you want to make a profit off it eventually, but really the reason we all have hobbies is because being a beginner at something is exciting. And I don't want to take that journey away from anyone. I just want to embolden them to feel confident on that journey that they can more often make right decisions over wrong ones, but not take away the option of making a wrong decision. Yeah. Sometimes that's the fun part, learning from that mistake. And Well, yeah. you'll learn a lot more making mistakes than you will doing it right every time. Yep. That's a good point. So for you personally, for ABCBs, um, does your revenue come more from education, from selling product, from books, it, or is it a combination? Yeah, it's, uh, there's no money in books for me. Oh, <laughs> sorry. No, no, I produce them because, um, especially because they're around education of children, and then the other ones are about native bees and native bee habitat. I am no expert in any of those things. So I work with people to create this content so that it's available to anyone when they need it, but that's not my wheelhouse. So like I'm filling a niche without 
making it my wheelhouse. It's like, I'm a teacher and I wanna know how to teach about bees. Great, here's this resource, read it. Someone else wrote it. I supported it, edited it, and advised on it. Um, but if you wanna know how to put honeybees on your school campus, I can help you with that. But if you wanna know how to make a pollinator garden, here's a resource that I recommend you use. <laughs> For me, 80% of my revenue comes from training and educational programming. I am an educational business. Mm. My passion is still beekeeping. So I still run um, what would be considered a small scale commercial apiary. And I am one of, I think the only treatment free queen producer in Western Canada, uh, if not all of Canada, there might be a few that I don't know about because they're small too. And mm -hmm. I mean, and getting to know everyone is difficult. And so that means like, I'm not using pesticides within my colony. I'm not using um, antibiotics within my colony management, the way conventional agriculture is normally managed. And that's really unusual. And so I do produce stock and I do sell it. Um, but that's just usually, don't tell the tax man, but I usually get paid in cash and it goes in an envelope. And depending on how the season goes, we either vacation in Lethbridge <laughs> or we vacation, you know, in California or Mexico. It just depends on how good of a season kind of defines like what, where that money is spent. Right. Um, but it's not like crazy profitable for me because I'm not at a scale to do that. But my passion is also really into how do I get the more people being self-sufficient in their operations so that we can actually shift the industry from a culture of globalized importation of stocks, like I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. and instead become, you know, become Saskatchewan and Alberta where they can breed stock and become self-sufficient and have a really good industry there. Why can't we have that here? And how do we learn these skills to, to, to do that? I have a question. Do you face or have you faced any criticism because you don't use pesticides? If that's a tradition. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it was really bad. Um, it didn't help that when I started beekeeping, I had a whole head of dreadlocks. So I was like this like hippie girl and I'm, yeah, I was young. Like I started at 20, like I'm only 36 now and I've been doing this since I was 19, 20. Like, so I'm still the young person in the room and I was doing treatment free. But what has happened again, it's like being the, being the person that runs and yells like the British are coming, the British are coming. They celebrate you after they won that war. <laughs> yes. You run up and you say the British are coming, the British are coming. And they go, what? And then everyone's massacred. No one remembers that you came and yelled the British are coming. No one cares. Mm -hmm. So I was saying, you know, pesticides are bad. We shouldn't be using fungicides. We need to be breeding for better stock, not stronger diseases. And it was like, you're a heretic by not treating your building disease and you're spreading it to everyone. You are now the cause of disease infection. Well, what's ended up happening now is the treatments don't work because there's resistance. And there's a couple of diseases where the treatments really aren't working at all and, or the treatment wasn't available because they weren't making enough money. The pharmaceutical company wasn't making enough money, so they stopped producing it. And so now for a lack of product, there's conversations of like, okay, wait a minute, Elise, what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, I have management protocols. It's not like I'm like just like letting my bees be diseased and spreading it. No, I'm like sampling for disease. Very, very critical, very hands-on. And that's why I'm small is so mm -hmm. I can like pick slugs off of lettuce leaves instead of spraying with a pesticide to kill the slugs, right? And so, so there's more of a conversation. Okay, well, maybe you can breed better stock. Maybe we can select for traits 
that show resistance to certain things? Um, how do we observe that? How do we manage that? And luckily, I have a decade of experience doing it, that it's like, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe we should work with Elise and write a queen rearing course. And maybe we should do a surveillance program and maybe inspect Elise's colonies and find out how they're doing. So it's, the conversation is changing in the last two years. Like COVID has been amazing. <laughs> Not everyone can Everyone needs a good news story. Um, but COVID, I mean, that's the thing is COVID mm. has shown there's Band-Aids okay. on stuff. COVID happened and the, you know, the air fell out of the balloon, right? Mm-hmm. The Band-Aids weren't sufficient enough anymore. And it's really shown weaknesses in industries and businesses, and it's forced people to actually have to reconcile and deal with stuff rather than just continuing to put bandages on. And so that's why COVID's been, in my opinion, culturally, politically, long-term, really a boon for this industry in particular. Short-term, monetarily, for the independent business owner, the farmer, it's been devastating. Mm -hmm. But I think. It takes, you know, it takes, you know, the dust bowl of the 30s to show that rotational farming practices actually and and soil health are priority, right? Like it takes devastation to build resilience. Yeah. And we're all experiencing that personally in our households, in our family, in our workplace, this truth. And so um, when it comes to beekeeping and beekeeping in general, COVID has been great. Um, you just have to have a vision of what the world's going to look like in 10 years. I think that, you know, you have to give your, well, we all have to give you full respect because you, you've put in the time, right? You've put in the time, you've worked through those obstacles until everyone was ready to hear that the British are coming, right? So well, I don't know that everyone's ready to hear the British is coming. So, but more people are. Yeah, more people. More people are just interested. I wouldn't say they actually are listening. They're more like, hmm, she's still here. Why is she still here? Like, we thought she would be gone. Like, we thought, you know, giving her the cold shoulder and talking crap about her behind her back in this small little community that we could like alienate her and bully her and send her, you know, threatening letters in the mail and like all that sort of classic toxic stuff. Thank God we're not in the same workplace or I probably would have quit, right? It's just too much. But you know, when you're alone in the field and you're watching the clouds move by and the bees gently lilting away and the smell of beeswax and honey, you forget about all that crap. You're just like, man, and you're surrounded by all these women doing powerhouse jobs, working as a team. It's nice that now when I look a part of the beekeeping community in Alberta, I can look around, I can see that manifesting in the human culture and society around beekeeping, around farming, around gardening, is women are taking really integral roles in this reconnection with nature, land, and each other and mentorship, um, whether like the existence of WeSTEM and the existence of the federal program to support WeSTEM. These things are chain reactions that are happening in our society. And women are taking the opportunities that are afforded them that weren't ever afforded before. And they're launching their careers. They were going to push before the opportunities were there. But now that they have a leg up to put them at least a little bit closer to an even keel of opportunity, um, we are conquering. That's so good. Can I ask you one more question? You mentioned IRAP. You You got funding from IRAP, right? And I think you were work with the National Research, our Research Council as well. Well, I just, IRAP is a program from the yeah. National Research Council. 
Yeah. So was that a, a process? I'm just wondering, cause there are, you know, we work with lots of clients who are looking for grants and yeah. stuff like, was that a, a hard journey or what steps did you have to go through for that? Well, to be honest, um, we, I, I went to a business conference in Olds mm-hmm. and that was hosted there by the town of Olds or the city of Olds. I think it's a town still. And they had a whole bunch of keynote speakers. And I just like raised my hand, asked questions, walked around, talked to people in the booths. And that's how I met Suzanne, who works with you guys at We yeah. Stand. And her and I have built a nice friendship. She's a beekeeper too. And through there is I met my IRAP um, ITA, who's in charge of my relationship, my comp, uh, contract with IRAP funding. And through there, that's when I started the very arduous journey of applying and filling out grants and doing that work and getting the language right and revisions. But I, that's why I can't express enough is like the importance of like the Alberta Women in Entrepreneurship Network, the Women in STEM Network, and I think even like more interprovincial and federal programs of just like the value of networking, the value of feeling supported and taking advantage of all the free programs that we STEM offers and other organizations offer. Because it doesn't matter what you're doing for business. If, if you aren't having an ask in mind or a need that needs supported, then you're not leveraging the potential that women can provide for each other. And I think that's, that's where that journey for IRAP, because I never would have thought that my business was big enough because everyone I know that gets National Research Council funding, it's like, oh, Cargill got it. That huge multinational agricultural consortium. Yeah. Um, oh, that feedlot that does, you know, $25 million a year got the funding. Um, I wasn't going to think like my business of one in a tiny little office with a PO box, you know, like I didn't think that that would be um, something that they were interested in, but they were. And so I think if I hadn't have gone to that conference, if I hadn't have had my asks out there, if I hadn't had a vision for my business in, in hand, I wouldn't have been able to answer questions of people who wanted to help me. Yeah. And that's, that's where that IRAP relationship started was I had a plan. I had a mission. I had a vision and I happened to meet the right person at the right time who was like, holy crap you are the exact type of thing we're looking for. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, here's a pile of paper, fill this out. And I was just like, oh. Did you get help while filling out the? Yeah, my IT is great. Like building those connections is great. Um, but I also have like mentors, especially like Wendy. She's a, she's a support, a mentor person through WeSTEM. And yeah. Wendy's been amazing. Pauline Petronov has been amazing. Um, so I'm taking advantage of the resources to help me get to find out like what opportunities are around and then doing the business planning work and the visioning work and the number work. And it's not fun. It's actually devastatingly exhausting. (laughs) Yes. But I mean, my business is now a business of three full-time people because I've been able to access support funding to get started with staff. And to make my vision become a greater and more attainable reality. That's fantastic. I think you make a great point. There's, there are so many resources that are out there and people are apprehensive to, to go after them. And it's really good to have the support network to, to help you. Cause it's, it's overwhelming. As you said, it's devastating. Well, and the other thing is, is as women, we are always capable of the imposter complex concept 
of this mm-hmm. idea of like, what is, what is, what am I worth? Am I actually worth a hundred thousand dollar loan, let alone a hundred thousand dollar grant? I mean, women are extremely cautious with money and always undervalue the work that they're producing and always undervalue their, their own intrinsic value, not mm-hmm. just the value of their product, or their business. And so you need that cheering squad to remind you of like, dude, $100,000 business loan isn't actually that much money when you look at Joe Blow who wants to open like a Popeye supplement place and is going to take out a half a million dollars without even like a personal like guarantee. Like there's no passion there. So, like, you know, I think that there's the context is women aren't used to being in a position and then they're put in bigger hoops to jump through, by the way. That you need a cheering squad. And if you're not, if you haven't found a cheering squad for yourself yet, you sure as heck had better find one. Yeah. Um, because that's the only way that you're going to feel nurtured enough to actually take what you deserve. Well said. Very well said. I seriously could, could speak to you for hours. I think I asked you, you know, one of the 12 questions that, <laughs> that I had prepared. <laughs> you didn't even talk about beekeeping, right? <laughs> It's okay. You're an educator. We talked about the importance of education. So thank you so much, Elise. Um, Any, any parting words, got anything on the go? Any, any plans for the next year? Oh, we've got lots. We've got Ron Finley going to be with us. He's the gangster gardener from South Central LA, a really good friend of mine. He's presenting in March. Awesome. Want to learn about urban gardening and spaces. And he's got a masterclass. He's one of the top 10 Ted talks of all time. He's going to be with us in March. We've got, um, a whole bunch of amazing speakers. We've got beekeepers doing conservation work in Northern India and in the Maharashtra district presenting nice. on how they help their indigenous cultures, the Korku people, learn how to manage wild bee populations in their traditional ways to conserve the forest and increase the pop- propagation of traditional medicines and food resources from the jungle. We've got all kinds of cool stuff. Um, so just go to abcbees.ca to learn more about it. Um, we've always got fun stuff and a great newsletter that we put out every two weeks. So if you're interested, even vaguely in bees, jump on. We have a lot of fun information there. And we're also on Instagram, of course, and Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much, Elise. This has been great. No problem. Thank you, Jenny. We want to hear from you. Is there a question that you'd like us to answer on our next podcast? Send it in to westem at chooselethbridge.ca. WeCast is a production of the Women Entrepreneurs in STEM program. WeSTEM is made possible thanks in part to funding from the Government of Canada's Women Entrepreneurship Strategy. For more information, visit our website at westem.ca or contact westem at chooseleftbridge.ca. Thanks for listening.